You're listening to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. Your host, Jennifer Hofferberg, is an award-winning veteran special educator who shares her experience, knowledge, and passion to help other special educators survive and thrive in this profession. Join her and other guests as they share tips and tricks of the trade for the ever-crazy, completely overwhelming, laugh-so-you-don't-cry profession of being a special education teacher. Hey there, welcome back to the Sped Prep Academy podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer, and this podcast was created to guide special educators in their journey to become amazing teachers. My goal is to provide you with the support and training you need to become a highly effective, highly successful special educator. If special education is your calling and you're in it for the long haul, then this is the place to be, and I'm going to be right by your side helping you learn everything you can about being a great special educator. So you might be asking yourself, what does a great special educator even look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are so many qualities that go into making a great special educator. Adaptability, organization, communication skills, working with others, compassion, knowledge, patience. I really could just go on and on and on. But just as with anything else, we are not all great in all of these areas. I can tell you that I am not the most organized of individuals but my ability to lead others is strong. And I'm not the most outgoing individual either, but I do maintain a high level of professionalism and accountability. But I think that every person who is going to work within the field of special education and be successful at it needs to have this one trait above all, and that is the devotion to improvement. As long as you have an open mind and are willing to learn and improve and grow, then nothing can stop you. So to help you grow, I have a little quiz I want you to take. It's called the What's Your Special Educator Superpower Quiz, and it's just a short, fun little assessment about where your strengths lie, and it helps you pinpoint your weaknesses so that you can make an intentional effort to improve on them. To take the quiz, go to www.spedprepacademy.com slash quiz, or you can just click the link in the show notes after the episode. I've gotten so much feedback from other special educators who say that this quiz is spot on and has helped them identify the superpowers that they never knew they possessed, and it gives a name to the kryptonite that's been holding them back. Again, that's www.spedprepacademy.com quiz. Today's guest is Caitlin Beltran, and if you have ever bought behavior products off of a TPT store before, it's likely that you've come across her store, Beltran's Behavior Basics. She has over 200 products in her store where she creates resources to help teachers track and manage student behaviors, dealing with everything from IEP goals and objectives, behavior data sheets, behavior management, digital and paper data trackers, social stories, and so much more. Caitlin is a certified special education teacher as well as a board-certified behavior analyst. She is a full-time behaviorist for a school district in New Jersey and is an adjunct professor for Rutgers University at the Graduate School of Education. She specializes in Google Sheets resources and also offers customized data tracking templates. So I feel very confident in her ability to discuss today's topic with us, which I'm sure you've guessed by now is tracking behavior data. I've had several guests on the show sharing their knowledge of identifying and managing behaviors, but we've never dug into how to actually track all of the data that is needed when working with behaviors. So let's hear from Caitlin and see what she can share with us. Well, hey there, Caitlin. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Before we get started, I want you to tell us just a little bit about yourself and share your journey in the field of special education. 
Sure. So I graduated from Rutgers University and I ended up doing fieldwork at a wonderful institution, um, part of Rutgers University for children with autism, uh, a school, I should say, as part of um, Rutgers University. And from there, I became an assistant teacher and then I became a special education teacher as I went back and um, did alternate route to pursue my teaching certificates. And then I went for my BCBA. So that's where I became a board certified behavior analyst at Rutgers. And then I kind of transitioned into the public school arena a few years after that. And I've been doing that ever since. That's awesome. Well, I asked you to come on the show today so that we could talk about collecting behavior data. I've had several different guests on the show where we discussed behavior in different capacities, but we've never taken a deep dive into how to take data on behavior. And it really is something that the large majority of special educators will need to know how to do, whether you teach within a behavior classroom or an autism classroom or a severe profound program, or even within a resource setting, which is what I teach in, um, it has come up. So it's going to be something that most likely you're going to experience. And so I'm glad that you've joined us to share your knowledge about all things dealing with collecting data, the how, the why, the when, etc. So let's just dive in. Um, what is behavior data and what is it used for? Sure. So behavior data really refers to kind of the process of documenting or recording any observable behavior that your student is exhibiting. Um, I know one common misperception, too, is that it has to be like a bad behavior, like getting up and leaving the classroom or throwing a pencil. And oftentimes, I would say most times, if we're referring to behavior data, we're talking about a problem behavior, but it can also refer to a positive behavior. So sometimes it's easier and kind of shifts our mindset into a more positive goal if we are collecting data on a positive behavior like raising hand instead of calling out or something like that. So it can be either a problem behavior or a socially appropriate behavior. Um, And the reason we do it is um, there's a lot of reasons, really. Number one, to maybe figure out why that behavior is happening. So we could be looking at like what time of day or what class period or what academic demand is most likely triggering the student. Or if we're trying out some different interventions like a behavior plan Um, different classroom setting, different paraprofessional, we might want to get a measurement so that we can compare and see over time, are our strategies working or are we just kind of spinning our wheels? And we can look at that behavior data day to day and week to week and see, you know, do things look good? Problem behaviors are going down and skills are going up or do things kind of look stagnant and we need to kind of tweak some of those strategies? Well, you mentioned the word measurement. So, Measurement, you know, to me always means numbers. I always think of the quantitative. So what is a direct measurement of behavior? Sure. So a direct measurement of behavior would be when the observer is witnessing and measuring that behavior firsthand. So an example would be if you have a student who is frustrated and they rip a paper down the middle, um, I might be tallying how often they rip a paper or how often they throw a pencil or something like that. I'm witnessing the behavior. I'm recording whether, you know, with a tally mark or some other um, form of data collection, um, exactly what I'm seeing and witnessing as opposed to an indirect measure. So an indirect measurement 
would refer to maybe like an interview with a parent or an interview with a teacher or some kind of rating scale or checklist, um, you know, like one through five, does this behavior happen a little bit, sometimes a lot, et cetera. And those types of data can be useful too for some purposes, but a lot of times that direct measurement is really the most useful kind of data we can get. So is it always quantitative or do you ever do like, you know, some some qualitative data where you're just taking notes? Does that count? Yes, I definitely, there's absolutely a time and place for all. Um, I think in the beginning stages, I'm relying a lot on the narratives, the interviews, the notes, and things like that. And then as we move further into the process, and I really hone in on what behavior I'm looking at, that's when I might start finding it easier to track, you know, numbers, like how often something is occurring, or how long somebody's engaging in a behavior, or a measurement like that. And I guess if you're going to tie it back to a goal, then you definitely need some type of way to measurement to measure it. Exactly. We really, um, we really just want like an objective measurement uh, yardstick sort of for progress. So now that we have a handle on what it is and why we need to collect it, can you tell us the different methods of collecting data? Sure. So um, that first kind of step I was talking about, sometimes the narrative or the checklist, just recording what we're seeing in that kind of more narrative form, That could be something like ABC data or antecedent behavior consequence data. And I'm just kind of taking notes and maybe filling in, checking little boxes as to what behavior I'm seeing, writing down freehand um, what's happening, and maybe jotting down the time of day and the period at which it's occurring and things like that. Then I'm going to probably eventually at some point switch over to um, a more strict measurement of behavior. And it could be um, a continuous measurement, such as frequency. So the most common example, the ones I was referencing, like how many times a student is doing something, like how many times a student is crumpling that paper or leaving the room or saying a disrespectful comment. Um, But it could be something like how long something is taking. So especially if you're doing um, a skill, like how long a student can engage in appropriate play or something like that. That could be a behavior data collection tool, or it could be some form of discontinuous measurement, which kind of refers to like using an interval, a time interval of some some kind. And that could be really useful when it's just not practical. You have a student who's engaging in a behavior at a very high rate. Um, they're crumpling papers all the time. They're crumpling papers 10 times, you know, in one class period. And it's just not practical for one teacher to be tracking and tallying that each time. So they might divide up their period in intervals and then start checking just yes or no. Did the behavior occur every 10 minutes or something like that? Okay. So what exactly does this look like? Um, can you walk us through what a data collection session would look like for a special education teacher? Sure. So first, I definitely want to make sure the behavior is objectively defined. So for example, if a teacher told me my student is, you know, really aggressive, like, can you come in and take some data on that so I can see how often? And if I just walk into the classroom kind of blind, I might be thinking aggression means, you know, hitting another child or stomping his feet on the floor or something, whereas maybe she referred to aggression as like clenching his fists in the air or some kind of verbal aggression. So I want to make sure whether it's between me and another staff member or just myself observing the student, kind of exactly what I'm looking for so that I'm recording it the same each time. So if I record aggression one way, my first observation and a different way, my second observation, I can't really compare those two things. It it wouldn't be meaningful. 
So once I have that um, definition kind of honed in on for consistency, then I want to decide on which type of data collection I'm going to use. So if it's a relatively low frequency behavior, um, it doesn't happen all the time, every minute of every day, I might do that tally mark. And if it's a really high rate behavior, I might do something like intervals where I'm breaking up the period into different chunks. Um, sometimes it might be something as simple as if I'm actually working with a student and I don't have full 100% of my attention, you know, dedicated to just the data collection, and I'm also taking program data or, you know, motivating the student in other ways, um, I might use permanent products. Like I'm putting uh, a hair tie on my left wrist to my right wrist every time they use a curse word or something like that so that I'm counting it in the moment, but I'm not breaking what I'm doing and I'm still teaching. And then later on, I can just kind of look down and say, oh, it happened four times. I didn't have to remember that number and I didn't have to like break attention from the student to write that down. So it really depends on how often you're looking to do it. If it's something like maybe an outside observer is doing as opposed to the teacher taking the data themselves, those pieces could make it look different. So I guess that just with anything else, things can go wrong. So, you know, it, things might not go as planned when you're trying to collect this data. So what are some of the roadblocks to obtaining good data? Yeah, absolutely. We want to plan for everything, but anything can happen. So some of the roadblocks are um, just logistics like staffing and time and things like that. So, I, you know, I would love to take data on every problem behavior I see and have a exact measurement every day and things like that, but it's just not a reality, you know, on one person. And even a teacher who's fully invested, like they're, you know, teaching a class, maybe have more, don't have a paraprofessional that's a one-to-one or something like that. So some of the roadblocks are just kind of finding creative ways to use the staff that we and time that we do have and kind of find like the best data collection tool to fit that scenario. So I might go into a situation and say, this would be perfect to do, you know, frequency data. But then once I walk into the classroom and see the aid ratio and what's going on, I might totally regroup and say, you know what, we're going to have to use an interval format for this. Or it's something that maybe we'll just do sample data. We'll collect data every hour in the morning and then just um, look at that hour data and not take data every minute of the day or something like that. Um, sometimes there is an maybe a issue with buy-in from different staff. Maybe the teacher really wants data collection and there is an aid, but it's a shared aid and, you know, they're not yet invested in the process and rightfully so they're overwhelmed with demands from the teachers and the admins and things like that. So maybe just having a conversation about the importance of data and how taking a little bit upfront can really pay off in the long run. And kind of just consistency within the classroom, making sure everybody has the same goals and has buy-in and things like that. So you mentioned the word aid. So I'm assuming you're talking about paraprofessionals. Yes, we call them uh, different things in different classrooms and different areas. Yeah, different areas of the country. There's so many different names for them. But whatever, whatever you call them, they're amazing human beings. And I couldn't do my job without them. So what steps do you take to teach the paraprofessionals how to take data? Absolutely. I think in some ways they're, you know, the most important people in the classroom at any given time. Um, They're on the front lines working with the students. So first things first, I kind of like to get to know the situation, get to know them and get to know the student I'm observing and kind of just sit down and have a conversation if there is time and make sure we are on the same page and we're prioritizing the same behavior and that um, kind of just learning from them as to what's happening day to day before I start kind of teaching them anything, because I want them to know that I really do value their input. And they could probably tell me a lot in a short period of time that 
could teach me a lot more about the student than me just coming and watching the student for a period. So after kind of getting the history from them and making sure we're sort of on the same page in our plan, maybe doing some pullout training if time permits and um, showing some different, you know, techniques and strategies as to how to collect data and role-playing for that staff member, what it really looks like. So I don't want to give anyone like a pencil and a piece of paper and be like, oh, just jot down every behavior you see, you see next Friday. <laughs> um, it doesn't really go well when that happens. So even if we have time to do role-play or if I can sit and take the data for the student and just be like, just watch me for five minutes, see if you get what I'm saying here and if you would do it the same way. And then maybe kind of flip it and like shadow them in the classroom and make sure if they have any questions, like I'm right there for them the first day and then kind of fade myself out and be like, okay, can, are you comfortable taking the data on this? And if I touch base with you Friday, do you feel like that could work for our next meeting or something? And I find that works pretty well as long as we're kind of able to keep in that constant communication. You know, I don't want a paraprofessional or an aide or whatever they're called in your district um, to feel like they're just kind of taking this data and like throwing it into the wind. Like I want them to know it's something that we're looking at and we should be looking at the data constantly to make decisions. So if it's something that's just kind of on a shelf collecting dust, um, you know, it's not good data, it's not meaningful to our program and nobody's going to really find value in that. So speaking of what to do with the data. Um, I didn't have this question on there, but what what do we do with the data? What, what do you use it for after you have it? So once I have the data, um, the obvious question would be to graph it. That's what most you know behavior analysts, we love our data and we love our graphs. Um, truth be told, there's just not time in the day to graph every piece of data I come along in contact with or collect or have somebody collect for me. Um, so I try to prioritize if it's like a very severe behavior, I'm making sure that I graph that so I can really see those changes um, up close and personal. So the minute I see a behavior trending up that I don't want to see going up, I'm kind of watching that very closely and able to make a change if I need to with the team. Um, and sometimes it's just more of doing a kind of visual scan at the end of the period, at the end of the day, um, checking in with the aide and or the paraprofessional and the teacher and saying, like, I noticed like this happened today and it was more than yesterday. And if I'm looking at that data closely enough, I don't actually need to put it in the graph to see the changes. So it kind of is a um, um, work in progress, I guess you could say, as to deciding what behavior needs to be graphed formally, sometimes putting that data into like a report that goes home and a progress report to a parent or sharing with the team. I like to really share the data as much as I can if I do graph it or put it into any kind of visual representation. And I find that really helps with the teachers and the paraprofessionals and keeping everyone on the same page and seeing like, you know, the data that you were collecting really was important because we were able to look at it this week and decide whether or not a change needed to be made. I, I've i gotten files from different teachers, you know, that, where the child has um, come to me from a different school or a different district. And there's information in that file that has, it's obvious that it's um, behavior, you know, data being collected, but there's no reference to behaviors in the IEP. So I find that I'm so glad that you said that, that, you know, it needs to have a purpose. It needs to be, if you're going to take it, you need to be using it. And um, I'm just so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. And I think too, like, you know, I remember being an assistant and even a teacher and 
a feeling like, you know, if it was an obligation that someone asked of me, you know, we all have that feeling where we're like, I'm more than happy to do it, but you want to see the value of it, you know, and don't get me wrong, like things fall through the cracks. No one's perfect. Like we'd all love to dot our I's and cross our T's and check our data sheets like every single day or every single night. Um, but the reality is if I'm, I, I always want to make sure I have a system in place where I'm able to look at it enough to make the changes. Because if I'm collecting so much data that I don't have time to look at it and analyze it, it's like just a vicious cycle and really benefits nobody in the long run. So I've kind of learned over the years the importance of um, sometimes taking a step back and making sure it could be taking less data, which is, you know, scary as a behaviorist to admit, <laughs> but um, taking a little bit less data, but so that it's more meaningful and more practical and it's um, giving us better information to make decisions with. Well, I know that you have a Teachers Pay Teachers store. So do you have any specific resources that you think would make it easier for the listeners to tackle this data collection task? I do. I have um, a wide variety of resources based around paper and digital data sheets. Um, I specialize in, I'm a huge Google Sheets nerd. So if you're looking for any digital data resources, um, some people find that easier nowadays to just plug it right into their computer. Um, I also have a paraprofessional binder, which is about 30, 35 pages of just information on data collection. So like what is ABC data? What is frequency data? Sample data sheets. So that's a kind of a nice starting point that I refer people to sometimes that it doesn't have to just be for paraprofessionals. It could be shared with teachers or parents. And then I have a couple of um, little bundles of special education data sheets of just um, data, whether it's rate, interval, partial interval, frequency data sheets, just kind of lumped together in like a nice little packet that people could modify and tweak for their individual students. I definitely need to check that out the next time I'm having to do that because I feel like I'm always creating something new. You know, I just, I, I get a student who, that I need to collect data on and I'm trying to come up with something quickly of how I want to collect that. So having that little that packet of, you know, varied forms, I guess, I think that would be amazing to have. So I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I've heard from some people, even if they don't end up using it exactly, it might just give inspiration as for the next resource or how they can modify it for a student. And I really do strive to keep everything kind of affordable that I offer um, for us educators out there, because I know we don't have all the money in the world to buy each and every pretty resource that we see. Are they editable where you could, you know, modify it to fit your needs? Some of them are and some of them are not, but I offer my contact information in every listing. And if a person purchases something and it's not quite fitting their needs, I'm more than happy to customize it at no additional cost. And I've done that many times. And I actually really like doing that because it kind of gives me an idea for like a way that I could vary it and add it to the next bundle or something like that. Well, Caitlin, it has truly been a pleasure talking with you. I, I, this is not, you know, something that I do on a daily basis like you do. It's, it's very rare that it comes up in my resource world, but um, can you tell us where we can find you so that we can learn more? Sure. So I am on Instagram, um, Beltran's Behavior Basics, and that's also the name of my Teachers Pay Teachers store. Okay. Well, thank you again for chatting with us. Thank you, Jennifer. It was a pleasure. Thank you for sticking with me until the end. I can tell just by listening to this show that you are just as dedicated to the field of special education as I am, and you want to grow into an amazing educator. And I'm here for it. 
I'm here for you, and I am so thrilled to be able to share all of my wisdom of being a veteran SPED teacher on the SPED Prep Academy podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to share it with friends, go ahead and screenshot an image of your favorite episode and tag me on Instagram. You can also subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. They give an instant boost to my ego, and they help others find the podcast as well. And then make sure you're following me on Instagram. I love to use that platform to add a little humor to our crazy days, as well as to provide you with motivation to get through the tough days, training on all sorts of topics that we need to know, and just overall support for what you do. You can find me on Instagram at Sped Prep Academy, and I've recently got into making some reels. They are way out of my comfort zone, but they are so fun to make. So make sure you check that out. If you liked what you heard today and realized you have found your Sped soulmate, please subscribe and then head over to spedprepacademy.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and sign up to be notified each time a new episode airs. Go out and have an amazing day and I'll catch you on the next episode.